Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading can be found on page 1134 of the Church Bibles, Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. Page 1134. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let me pray for us. We do indeed, our Lord and God, thank you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are uh, one who loves and gives, that you gave your Son, the one who also loves and gives, giving himself that we might be forgiven. And then Father and Son, giving the Spirit that we may be drawn to yourself, to be drawn into that same loving, uh, giving relationship, changing and transforming us. And that's what we ask for now in ourselves for the sake of others and the glory of your name. Amen. Please do sit down.
Well, my thanks to, to Tim for leading us uh, through, and again, welcome uh, to you all. Uh, two things you might like to do. One would be uh, to uh, dig out the little handout um, so that you can see where we're going in the next uh, 25 minutes. Uh, so there it is, um, looking at uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, you might also find it helpful to have a Bible to hand. And that reading that we had earlier, page 1134, is the page number, and we'll come to that in just a moment. I, I can still picture exactly where I was sitting when, with tears in her eyes, Sarah, a young mum, said to me, I tried to keep God's commandments, but I just can't do it. Uh, we'd met because she wanted to have a baby baptised, and not here in another church. Uh, we talked about the promises that she would make on behalf of her children. And uh, Sarah and I had a good discussion around what baptism was really all about. And as our eyes filled up with tears, I really felt for this young mum. Uh, she was someone, it seemed to me, in our meeting with real integrity. She was being honest with me, but far more importantly, she was being honest with herself. She had tried to live differently. She tried to keep God's commandments, but she couldn't do it. Now, I reckon there were two huge things that Sarah needed to grasp about the Christian life. One was she thought the Christian life was about keeping rules and regulations. It isn't. And secondly, she tried to live God's way without having the resources to do it. Now, look, there are all sorts of things that Sarah and I went on to talk about. Without question, Sarah needed to know about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And on this uh, Pentecost Sunday, we remember more than that, we... I trust celebrate God giving the Holy Spirit to his church. And so it is the personal work of the Holy Spirit that we think about today as we come to think, uh, continue to think about the, the Trinity, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, things we've already said that we believe uh, as we've gone through uh, this service. And turn with me, if you will, to Romans then, chapter 8, page 1134. And uh, if you are following along on the handout, we're at our first point no condemnation. This uh, chapter begins where we left off last week, really, and it is the message that Sarah and indeed all of us need to hear. It's the wonderful truth of the gospel. Uh, you'll see it halfway through there on verse 3. Halfway through verse 3, God sent his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That is a such good news because back in chapter three of the book of Romans, the truth of our predicament has clearly been stated. Just flip back a couple of pages with me to chapter three, verses 10 to 12. Page 1130, chapter three, verse 10. This is a summary, really, of the first couple of chapters of Romans as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've become, together become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. It's quite emphatic, isn't it? And that is quite a statement. We've all turned away from God. We've all gone our own way. Martin Luther, the, uh, the great uh, 16th century German reformer, talked about the human heart being turned in on itself. We were created in the image of God to be like God and therefore to be people who love. Again, we've thought about this a couple of weeks ago when we thought about the Trinity, uh, that God is in and of himself loving. That is his very nature. So we are meant to be people who, like God, are always looking outwards, always other person-centred. 
But in turning from God, who's like that, the human heart turns in on itself, which is why we are so selfish at heart. And our self-obsessed selfishness ruins life. But worse than that, in turning from God, we, we deserve only God's punishment. But here at the beginning of chapter 8 is the wonderful good news of the Christian gospel. Chapter 8, verse 3, God sent his own son, Jesus, to be a sin offering. Isn't that wonderful? Particularly when you've understood chapter 3. I was uh, with some uh, friends of mine for a couple of days this week, uh, friends who uh, we were at college with um, and uh, training to do this job together. And uh, we meet up once a year to try and keep each other going and make sure that we're keeping on the straight and narrow. One of my friends is called Bob. I've known him then for more than 20 years now. And being with Bob uh, this week reminded me of a time when we were at college together. Bob preached at a local church and it was recorded so that it could be assessed by his tutor at college. That's what we had to do. we go and preach and then we were given marks out of 10 or whatever. Now, it was in the days, back in the days of cassette tapes. Now, some of you are old enough to remember these. Some of you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, but stay with me. It, these things record things onto them. And uh, so uh, Bob had had the recording of his sermon uh, and uh, preached, and he gave it to the tutor. He didn't really want to, because having preached this sermon, he thought the sermon was rubbish. I know that feeling regularly, but anyway, that's how he felt. Anyway, the lecturer talk, took the tape and went into his study and put the cassette in the player and pressed the button. And at the precise moment that he did that, the telephone rang and the lecturer answered it. And it was one of those calls that went on and on and on, much longer than he expected. And when he put the telephone down, he thought to himself, now what was I doing? And then he saw the cassette player with the cassette going round, but no sound coming out. And he suddenly realised he'd pressed not the play button, but the record button. And the entire sermon had been erased. And when the lecturer, uh, feeling a bit, you know, as if he'd done something rather naughty, told my friend Bob, Bob was delighted. He knew his sermon hadn't come up to the mark. He was delighted. All white clean, no record of it. Had to get full marks. Now, that's a small example of what Jesus did when he died on the cross Jesus, God himself, do you remember? This is what we saw last week. God himself stepped in to die for me so that all the stuff in my life that is rubbish, all the times that I've not come up to the mark, and there are many of them, all that can be cleansed, wiped clean, so I can be cleansed from my sin. That's the amazing good news of the gospel. We thought about it last week. As we look at the cross of Jesus, we see just how much God loves us. Do you remember, again, let's let me put it into the context of the Trinity because that's what we're trying to do over these three, these three weeks. The Father loves the Son so much, this perfect love that he has for his Son. And he says, but I will give him to die because I love people and this is the only way they can be forgiven. The Son loves the Father so much always in perfect relationship with one another and the son says I will go and die and be separated from the father because I love people so much and it's the only way they can be forgiven no one else loves me like that that's Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 as we come back page 1134 to chapter 8 that is Romans chapter 8 verse 3 God sent his own son Not somebody separate, God himself in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Here is the heart of the Christian message. 
It's not try harder to keep God's law. Sarah knew she couldn't do that. And any of us who are honest as well know we can't do it either. The Christian message is the good news that Jesus has died to cleanse me and forgive me because I can't keep God's law. And so Romans chapter 8 verse 1, the good news is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I should be condemned because I've pushed God away. I've done the most evil thing in rejecting God. I should be condemned, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As those who are turned in on themselves and who've rejected God, this is such a relief to hear, isn't it? I need not stand condemned before God when I meet him. I'll never forget the day when I first grasped this. It was 30 years ago now. Like Sarah, I'd uh, realised I wasn't the sort of person I ought to be. I'd begun to realise that I didn't even live up to my own standards, let alone God's. I tried to live differently, I really had, and I couldn't do it, just like Sarah. So what a relief to discover that Jesus had died for me, that I could be forgiven, that there was now no condemnation for me. If, to use the language at the end of verse one, if I was in Christ Jesus, if I became a wholehearted follower of Jesus, That's what Sarah needed to hear as she despaired at being unable to keep God's law. She needed to know the Christian message is not, are you good enough? No, it is the good news that even though we're not good enough, Jesus is good enough. He lived the perfect life and then he died in my place so that I could be forgiven. No condemnation, what a relief. But again, look at chapter eight, verse one, right at the end of the verse. This is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's the conundrum. But I'm turned in on myself. What did we see in Romans chapter three? Naturally, I don't and won't seek God. I won't do it. So it's as if at the cross, Jesus has opened the door for me to come back into God's family. As I look at Jesus at the cross, I see God with his arms open wide, ready, willing and able to receive me back into his family. But I'm turned in on myself. I'm not interested, even though he loves me so much. And that leads us to the second thing that Sarah needed to hear. So from no condemnation to, secondly on the handout, if you're still following along, new desires. And here is where we think about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Those two verses really just give a comparison between the Christian and the unbeliever, between the real follower of Jesus and everyone else, frankly. Indeed, these verses begin to tell us how anyone becomes a genuine Christian disciple. And it is all about God, the Holy Spirit, how he changes our desires. That's the key word in verse five and six. Did you see it there? Desires. We often talk about our heart's desires. It's what we long for, uh, what we live for, what makes us get up in the mornings. Our heart's desires, if you want to remember, think what they are, are what fill our thoughts when our minds wander. You know, those idle moments, your mind has wandered off and you're thinking about something. That's your heart's desire, your hopes and your dreams. That's what these verses are speaking about. Now, this letter, Romans, has already spoken of our natural desires and has called them sinful or evil because they are all about turning away from God, living for self, being turned in on ourselves. Our desires are certainly not for God. 
We've turned away from him. And so led by our natural desires, verses five and six, we are heading only for death. This is not just physical death, although it is that. It is spiritual death as well. Heading for death because our natural desires, our sinful minds are, verse seven, do you see, hostile to God. And if I turn away from God, who is the source of life, I will die. And if that isn't desperate enough, I can't do anything about it. Look closely at verse seven. The sinful mind does not submit to God's law and cannot submit to God's law. You see, this is really important. It's not just that I won't change, although that is true. It is much deeper. It's that I can't change. Left to myself, I cannot live for God. That's what Sarah discovered. And um, maybe more importantly for us this morning, it's what Martin Luther discovered 400 years ago. He wrote, and again, the quote is on the handout, by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. See, naturally, we don't desire God, but but the good news is that the Holy Spirit changes our desires, setting our hearts and minds on the things that the Spirit himself desires. So, uh, again, let me complete that quote from Luther. By my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel. And that's what we read here in verses five and six, and it's what any real believer has experienced. For me, I was 20. So for the first 20 years of my life, I'd lived for myself. Uh, To use this language, I'd followed my own desires. God wasn't the one who directed the way I lived. Oh, again, don't misunderstand. I believed he existed. I thought about him from time to time, but he wasn't my heart's desire. He didn't drive how I was going to live. Then something happened to me. I became aware of my sin. And that was not just that I wasn't good, although I wasn't, but that I'd turned away from God. That's what I became aware of. I became painfully aware that I paid little attention to the very one who gave me everything. And strangely, I found myself wanting to know this God. I had a new desire in me. Of course, I had no idea at the time what was happening, but it was the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's verse five. You see? With the Spirit, those who have the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. So this is really important. The Holy Spirit changes us by changing our desires. How kind of God. Again, let me use myself as an example, if I may. I'd rejected him for the first 20 years of my life. I took all the good things God offered, life and love. I, I really enjoyed life. He'd given me it all. I took all the small things God had given me, food and fun and family and friends. I enjoyed them. I took all the good things that God gave me and I rejected him. But here's the kindness and love of God. First, Jesus steps in, in history. God God himself, remember, in human form, stepping in to be a sin offering, dying on the cross to give me a way back, to wipe the past clean, all gone. Opening the way then for me to return to God the Father. And the, but he doesn't stop there. Then in, in steps the Holy Spirit. God himself again, and this is the important point that we'll come to in a moment. God himself in the Holy Spirit steps in to me to change my desires to turn back to him. Now let's stop here for a moment and let's put this in the context again of the Trinity. And uh, listen to Mike Reeves on this. 
Uh, you'll see the, uh, the quote, very helpful quote, at the bottom of the first side of this handout. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit love and enjoy each other, and created in their image, we were made to love and enjoy them. Blindly and foolishly, though, we've all turned to love and enjoy other things, things that in reality are completely unable to satisfy. But the Spirit's first work is to set our desires in order, to open our eyes and give us the Father's own relish for the Son and the Son's own enjoyment of the Father. Now, it's that last sentence that I think is so very helpful, for it tells me what the Spirit desires and therefore what desires he will put in me. This is crucial. God doesn't just want me to be moral. Lots of people are moral who aren't Christian. I'm not knocking being moral. It's a good thing. But it's not Christian to be moral. That's not what he's doing here. This is far more significant. Again, halfway through verse 5, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And what does the Spirit desire? Well, we've just seen it here from this quote from Mike Reeves. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. Remember, God is love. And remember, we said that meant that God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love each other perfectly, have loved each other for all eternity. And so the desire, here's the crucial point, the desire of the Spirit is to love the Father and the Son. And so the desire that the Holy Spirit gives us is a desire to love God. That's what he begins to do in me. And he draws me into the love that God has within himself and he puts this desire in me to love the Father and the Son just as he, the Holy Spirit, desires to love the Father and the Son. And then, as we discovered a couple of weeks ago, because God in his very nature is loving and giving and generous, Because his love is so extravagant, he wants to give life and blessing to others. Because of all that, when we're drawn into that kind of loving relationship, that gives us the desire to begin to love God and others because God is a lover of others. Again, it's what we thought about a couple of weeks ago. From time to time, we meet people who are so kind and gracious and warm and generous that just a little bit of time spent with them affects how we think and feel and behave. We enjoy being in their presence and we come away and we think, I'd like to be more like that. That's what the Holy Spirit does to us. He brings us into this most wonderful loving relationship, the most wonderful loving relationship in the universe, the relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And we find ourselves wanting to love God and love others. That's the desire of the Spirit. That's the change the Holy Spirit brings. And when he does that, it changes everything. See, there was Sarah desperately trying to keep a set of rules that she can't keep. None of us can. And it left Sarah feeling desperate and it will leave any of us feeling desperate. And if that's what you think the Christian life is, you will be desperate. I can't keep the rules. Indeed, it's horrible. It's basically, that's, 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 if I may use this word pejoratively, that's religion. Keeping this set of rules to try and keep in with God, and it's awful. And it will leave you miserable, which is why some people who come to church are miserable. Because they're just trying harder and they can't do it, and I feel sorry for them. But look, it is 
something quite different to be a real follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit works in us that we love God and loving God matters, not a list of rules, which doesn't mean that the rules don't matter. Uh, You see, God's law is all about love. Think of it like a good marriage. A good marriage is not based on a set of rules. I'm not married to Caroline because I keep a set of rules. But there are rules to be kept as an expression of my love. Not least of all, don't commit adultery. But again, I don't keep the rules because they, these are rules, but my desire is to love Caroline. So I keep, you see the difference is, it looks the same. The difference is huge. Now God's Holy Spirit then gives me new desires and so Paul writes of the genuine Christian believer, verse nine, you however are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the spirit if the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he does not belong to Christ. That brings us to our third point over the page now. So we've done no condemnation, new desires and thirdly never alone. Uh, These uh, points are a lot uh, quicker I've gone through 19 pages in my notes and it only goes up to 25. So you see, when you get to point three and you see there's five, you get a bit depressed. But no, it's okay, we're nearly there. Verse nine is a great verse as it helps us consider not just what the spirit does, but who the spirit is. Now again, look at verse nine carefully. The spirit is called the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. Let me just make this point. The point is the Holy Spirit is God. And so the remarkable and almost unbelievable truth is that God, the spirit of God, lives in the Christian. Now let me stop here for a moment and touch very briefly on two misunderstandings that are dealt with in this verse. Some of these things that I've said are not new to you, but these two very important misunderstandings that I come across again and again. The second half of verse nine is very clear. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, why is that so important? This is the first point that is so important to grasp. Because there are some Christian groups who say that after becoming a Christian, you need then to have another experience to receive the Holy Spirit. It comes in various, under various names. Some people call it the second blessing or or being filled with the Spirit or being baptised in the Spirit. And this is very clear. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Positively, that means that when you do become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is given to you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, if you want to chase that up later. The Spirit then is given to every believer when they're converted. It's clear from verse 9 that here there is nothing of the Christian without the Spirit. The second misunderstanding is that the Holy Spirit is a force or a power, like something out of Star Wars. May the force be with you. Mm, you get zapped by the Spirit odd no here in verse 9 we see the spirit is a person he is the spirit of God he is the spirit of Christ so we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it if it's in if it's natural for you to be talking about it when you think of the Holy Spirit please change from this moment on and call him he because he's a person not a force the spirit of God is God so those are the two misunderstandings that this verse clear up very clearly for us but here's the thing that's very exciting I think As the Spirit of God lives in us, God lives in us. 
And that is wonderful, again, because it speaks, again, of God's giving nature. Uh, uh, Tim uh, brought this out, I thought, brilliantly through the first part of our service. Uh, It talks of God's giving nature, and it points, again, towards the Trinity. God gives himself. See, the Spirit is God. So the Christian enjoys the closest of relationships with God now. We've already said it. The Christian life is about a beautiful, loving relationship with God But here's the thing, if the spirit were just a force and if God were not Trinity, God would remain a distant unknown deity up there. Can't really get close to him. God up there giving us some impersonal help perhaps, you know, this force. Uh, Fred Saunders writes, again it's on here, God gives himself to to us to be our salvation. He does not dispense blessings but himself himself. Isn't that helpful? We thought about that last week as we considered Jesus at the cross. As the Father gives the Son to die on the cross, he doesn't send a third party to die, but God gives himself. Here it is again, God gives the Spirit. Not an impersonal force, but God gives himself to us. So Christian verse nine, the Spirit of God lives in you. And that makes it very personal. Now, all of this is not to say that when we become Christians, we live perfect lives. Yes, the Holy Spirit gives us new desires, but that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with my old desires. Indeed, that's the very point of this whole section. And it leads to our fourth point, new obligation, verses 12 to 14. Let me read verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. It's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. But if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Uh, This is wonderfully realistic. Uh, Please don't think that I've been saying or that the Bible is teaching that having the Holy Spirit living in you means that it is possible to live the perfect, victorious Christian life and then or never do anything wrong. That's not the point at all. I don't need to tell most of you because you've been Christians for years. You only have to have been a Christian for more than five minutes and you know that you don't live a perfect life. Yes, the Holy Spirit is living in me, but my sinful nature hasn't gone away. But because the Holy Spirit is living in me, so, verse 12, we have an obligation. See, if all this is true about the God, God dying for me to bring me back, God putting these new desires in me, if all that is true, then I'm obliged to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. And that means, verse 13, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. So now you see, as I read the Bible, which of course is the word of God that was written by the Spirit of God, so he, the Holy Spirit, tells me how I should live. And then, as I hear how I'm to live, I'm to put to death those things that I know are not of him. That is the daily thing I'm to do. In his power, with his help, but that is my obligation. He will help me to do that. And here's the the thing that really this whole passage is driving towards, I think. As I do that, as I put to death the misdeeds of the body, as I'm led by the Spirit, then I gain great assurance that I am a child of God. Leads to our fifth point, absolute assurance. Now, you can tell that I was struggling here because uh, I was away with my friends for two days and uh, didn't have as much time as I might have done. But I got them on the case as well. And I said, I've got five points. The first one begins with an N, no condemnation. The second begins with an N, new desires. The third begins with an N, never alone. And the fourth, new obligation. 
can you think of what I can do to, to put in front of, uh, of, of assurance? And we couldn't come up with one. So it became absolute assurance. I'm terribly sorry. If anybody can think of a good end, I'd like to know. And if you can think of it before uh, 11 o'clock, that would be even better. So I've got to do this again. Anyway, absolute assurance. In short, the point is this. It is as I continue to live by the Spirit, that is, the Spirit puts new desires in me. I desire to live differently. I desire to love God. He gives me the the ability to change. As I then actually live that out, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, I gain assurance that I am a child of God. That's what's going on in these verses. Let me read from verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit are sons of of God, for... You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's a complex little argument, but it's not really that difficult to understand. Wonderful, wonderful truths here. End of verse 14, Christians are sons of God. End of verse 15, we are called, we can call God Abba, Father. We can call the almighty creator of the universe, Daddy. Verse 16, we are God's children. And as God's children, verse 17, we are heirs with Christ. We'll inherit everything that Jesus will inherit. He's going to inherit everything. So, so will we. We can be certain of life beyond the grave in the presence of God who loves us. Those are remarkable truths. And here's the point. We can be certain of them because we know the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we know the Holy Spirit lives in us as we live by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. That's how this argument goes. Here is why those who live the Christian life have great assurance about their future. Here is why those who are not living the Christian life aren't certain about whether they're going to be in heaven. Well, of course, they they won't be because they have no mark in their lives that they are Christians. Well enough. Uh, Time definitely has gone. But in summary, Sarah was desperate as I met with her. She couldn't live out the commandments of God and so she knew she was doomed before her God. She needed to know that the Christian life isn't about keeping rules and regulations. It's about knowing that God himself in Christ has died as a sin offering, bringing cleansing. But Sarah also needed to know the work and person of the Holy Spirit. God himself putting a new desire in us. A desire that is for God, a desire to live for God. And then as I live for God, the assurance that I am God's child. I'm in a different relationship. And in that relationship, I can be absolutely sure that my father will embrace me and welcome me back into his family when I die. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you so very much again for, on this Pentecost Sunday, the gift of your Holy Spirit, you, God himself, coming and living in us, changing desires in us, giving us the desire to love you and therefore to love others. And so we would ask you, Heavenly Father, to help us 
Those of us who know uh, this truth that the Holy Spirit is living in us, uh, to live uh, according uh, to this new obligation, to live according to the Spirit. For those who are uncertain about these things, please, would you give them now a desire to live for you? Would you give them the desire to call out to you, to give them the Holy Spirit and to become Christians? They too may have this deep assurance of being your child and coming into a lovely relationship with you, our Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.